Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is organized noise. This is literally a podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for pressing play. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles in an apartment building. Uh... So I've been writing lately, and I alluded to, uh, I alluded to this in a recent monologue. I've been doing some writing involving my childhood, involving memory, and uh, specifically when it comes to thematic concerns, I've been focusing on mortality, how uh, death and awareness of death shapes a person. And how that sort of thing has uh, shaped me. Because I think it has. And, and I think, you know, I think that's inevitable. Right? I mean, like, for, for some people more than others. But, it, you know, if like me, 
you bore witness to multiple deaths when you were a child. Not like the actual act of dying, but you know, there were people died when I was a kid. Uh, including the, you know, and there are some tragic ones. Uh, that stuff sticks with you when it's around. And I don't want to overstate it either. It's not like I had some sort of like tragic, like ultra tragic childhood, but uh, you know, I didn't get off scot-free. I saw some stuff and, uh, you know, it sticks. And it would be weird if it didn't, I think. So this is the mode that I'm currently working in. And what's interesting is that uh, earlier today, uh, as I was uh, walking around, I was contemplating mortality and my awareness of it, retroactively speaking. And it occurred to me that I cannot remember when I first learned uh, that I am a mortal. <laughs> it's hard to say that word. It's like mortal, mortal. I have no recollection of when that happened. When I first learned that I am a mortal being. And this, when you really think about it, it seems a little absurd. I feel like this is something that all of us should remember, all of us should remember, right? I mean, if you're going to remember anything from your childhood, if anything's going to stand out and, uh, continue to exist as like psychological residue into your adult years, it should be this. I mean, I can remember when Ronald Reagan got shot. I know where I was. I can remember the first movie I saw. Uh, I can remember my grandfather teaching me how to wipe properly. He actually did that. Uh, and yet I can't remember uh, when I first realized that one day I'm going to die. <laughs> like I can remember where I was during the O.J. Simpson car chase. And I should add that I was in college and very stoned when that was happening. So I have every reason to not remember it. Uh, and yet I do remember it. But I cannot recall uh, the moment when I first came to grips with the grand existential tragedy that is the finite nature of existence. Which then makes me wonder, you know, have I always just known? Like, was there a moment when I first had this epiphany? Or is it some kind of awareness that we just have from birth that's like programmed into our DNA? I don't know. And, you know, I should add here that I don't think I've ever had a friend tell me the story of how they realized they were mortal. I've never heard it discussed. So maybe we're all in the same boat. I don't know. I sort of wish there was a moment. I wish that I could look back on my childhood and see myself at age five, walking to my little elementary school with my little backpack on. And uh, suddenly I dropped to my knees 
and I begin weeping. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Maggie Nelson. She is the critically acclaimed author of many books, including Jane, A Murder, Women, The New York School, and Other True Abstractions, The Red Parts, Bluettes, and most recently, The Art of Cruelty. I'm very happy to have her here on the program. Here she is, folks, the lovely and talented Maggie Nelson. I was, what I was going to say, uh, Timothy Ferris. Yep. Is that uh, Mark Marin, who's a podcaster, a comedian, um, you know, who's had a lot of success, and I'm a big fan of his, but he had Timothy Ferris on his show, and uh, he interviewed him in a way that I thought was really astute. Like, he zeroed in on the fact that the guy has a lot of unhappiness. Interesting. Because no one, like, yes. drills down into all yes. this stuff and, like, fixates this yeah. obsessively with yeah. the diet and with the right. work schedule and right. with, like, life hacking unless, yeah. like, they really... They need it. They need it. They need it. And so, you know... Yeah. My sister just went to go see him on stage in San Francisco okay. and bought us extra tickets that we didn't use. But you didn't you know, go? No. No. I would have liked to. I mean, know. you know, fascinating, smart guy. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, these books are compelling, but I don't know. Something about it leaves me feeling, uh, what's the word, unsettled. Well, now I've gone. I've gone to carbs in the big way because I can't stand the hard-boiled eggs, no. Brussels sprout breakfast every morning that's around me. So I'm just now I exalt in my right. cereal <laughs> You're and just bread. Like, hey, and dude. Exactly. Check it out. Strawberries, the whole thing. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, that's the part of it that really frustrates me is that you can't have fruit. Right. I know. Well, see, I just that's what I always say. You know, God gave us fruit. Fruit's good. Right. And any diet that says no fruit, yeah. it's just a problem. Fuck, I'm not yeah. doing that. <laughs> Um, so I'm a little intimidated to talk to you and I need to say this at the outset. I get this with some people and it's usually because I did too much prep. Like the less I prep, the better off I am. Because when I start to do research and it's like, oh God, she's published, you know, umpteen books. She's got a Guggenheim. She's got her PhD. She's referencing people in literature who I've never heard of, probably should know, um, and all I want to talk about is the four-hour body. <laughs> four body. I'm trying to give a good start. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know. I mean, you've done a lot, and I feel like you are really learned. Do you feel learned? No. I mean, I no, but that's also – I mean, it really depends on the circles you run in, you know, because I give a lot of talks or a lot of places or, you know, because I – 
you know, maybe because of the having a PhD or being invited to different, you know, art history departments or other things, I, you know, I run into a lot of very learned people for whom learnedness is um, all they're aspiring to do, even more than creative work or whatever. So their job is to be learned. Exactly. Yeah. And their job is to show their learnedness and their job, you know, so, so I spend a lot of my days not, you know, feeling like I'm the creative rogue on the outskirts of the learned people. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, but I mean, I feel like too, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's a certain seriousness to your approach. And I, and I don't mean that in, uh, like in, I don't mean to say humorless. Mm-hmm. I just mean that, um, you take the work seriously. You're not messing around with Facebook. You don't have a website. You just have your academic website. That's no. like how I start yeah. to, when I start to look at writers online, it's like, Okay, this person's wasting time like I waste time. Right. And then right, some right, people right. I'm like, this person's right. just getting shit done. Right. And are you that way? Are you getting stuff done? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head of why I don't have any of that, which is just that, um, you know, my time feels really pressed and I feel like I also have, I mean, this is, you know, intimate, but I have, you know, I have, I have, I have physical issues like, you know, my wrists or things that are bad, like from sitting at the computer. So to get the amount of writing done, I get done. You can talk to me about your carpal tunnel. Yeah. Like, so. well, I just need, <laughs> I need to, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to, you know, go to the river and I want to go, I mean, I want to get away from my computer. So, you know, the idea of adding on more computer related activities onto my writing life and my email life that I have to do for work is just really frightening that sounds to me. Sa- but see that sounds sane to yeah. me you have yeah. have you ever yeah. dipped a toe into the social media waters no you never have no and you never will well it seems like we're getting everyone's now at parties you know for like it was inter- it's interesting being on the outside because the first couple of years everyone was trying to talk you into it and now everyone's like oh don't do it don't do it right. i'm getting off of it you know so i feel like i'm riding the the wave is crested and fallen and maybe now it now you're be. cool so now, I, like now I you're like hip, you've been hip the whole time do you know michelle t uh no but i mean i'm familiar she's with she's funny but she was you know she was telling me the other day, she was like, Maggie, I used to be like you, you know, I was Michelle T at AOL.com, you know, I'm not on Facebook. She's now I'm Michelle T at Gmail and I've got, you know, whatever, 70,000 followers, you know, it's all out there for you. And I was like, that's right. great, but I still remain, you know, my AOL address I picked in, you know, 1998 or something. And you still have it. Mm-hmm. You're still rocking the AOL. I've been told I couldn't get a job because it would mark me <laughs> as somebody who wasn't with the times. Okay. Well, so okay. do you ever feel... Uh, you know, do you ever say to yourself, I, I have to do this because it's going to help me find readers and help me, you know, you're not, you're obviously not concerned with that. You'll let the readers come to you and find you in whatever ways yeah. they will. I mean, you know, in, in moments when pre- when publishers have, have put pressure on me to make a website or something, I'll go, I usually go on like a Google hole of looking at writers' websites, you know, and, you know, I don't mean this as a diss on anyone because websites are great you know my partner's an artist and we just finished making his website i'm really pleased we got that up and stuff but a lot of the writers i admire the very most you know they don't nothing comes up for them in that way and i just kind of feel like well you know that's but that's the thing is that they're like in their ivory towers they don't give a shit that's the that's there's a coolness to not having a web presence and i think there's a desperation which i engage in to like tweeting and facebooking and some people i think i think it's a gesture of confidence perhaps or maybe aloofness in some cases, yeah. just to be like, I'm not going to mix with these people. I think for me, it's it's really just time. It's just time, and it's also it, it's honestly my own foibles. Like I would be as petty, petty and worried, and talking about who defriended me as anybody else. And I just don't. I can't, I, I can't. I'm. 
you know, it's like quitting drinking. It's just like, I see the road for me. I can't continue. I can't, I can't indulge it. But then also I think some of it is, um, is I actually think it's maybe related to, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think it's actually related to writing sometimes personally, which is that I feel like I uh, already speak the personal or intimate things or the everyday things that I'm interested in sharing, but I'm not interested really in this. I'm really interested in the personal made public, but I'm not that interested in the kind of like, Hey, I had scrambled eggs today. Like I, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. just doesn't, um, it, it kind of, it empties me out of all this love I have for all of the kind of intricate, uh, just all the intricacies that self-revelation can have in the literary sphere. Yeah, you save it for yeah. the book. Yeah, I save it for the book, I do. And I don't, I mean, maybe, uh, yeah, I think so. That's what I need to do. Yeah. <laughs> I need to save it for the book. I keep And I keep podcasting a lot of it, too. I feel like I talk a lot, yeah. a lot about things in the show that I would, or I should be writing about. Right. Well, but, that, that's the thing is there's only a certain amount of um, energy. I mean, I think people often talk about like if they live alone versus you live with someone and you might have like you might live with someone and have a great intimate uh, intellectual, you know, correspondence. But you're just ta- you're, ta- you're speaking out all your ideas, you know, and then when you kind of go to write them down, you might have spent them a little bit. So right. I think there's kind of this importance of like. You know, not holding back, like having your great intellectual conversations, but just holding back just enough energy, you know, so that like you were saying before we started, like wait till the microphone's on. Right. So we just don't, you know, because then you're tired and then you're rehearsing what you had to say instead of discovering it anew, you know, on the page. Yeah, you can't like you you can't replicate it. You know, that's happened to me before where like I'm talking to someone pre taping and like something really good comes up and then. I've tried to like re- recreate it and all like the juice is yeah. gone, you know. I mean, I'm not down on anyone who's, you know, I mean, honestly, I don't know how people do it, how they do the Facebook and Twitter and stuff, just how they do it and then do everything else in their lives. Because, you know, the, as the wheel of, you know, capitalism crushes us into like, you know, having to work so much and different things. I don't know where people find the time, but, um, you know, because I have a little baby right now and I'm half the time like grading a paper, trying to, you know, keep him sleeping with a little pen light on the paper. I mean, like, I, right. like I'm like i like, when would I do that? I mean, you would tie, find the time to do the Facebook, but I just don't feel like I have it right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what does your work like schedule look like? Like how often, I mean, how, like do you write every day? Are you very, no. are you a very disciplined? No. no, no. I'm always like, I just fall blank when the whole question of like, I mean, I'm, I, People think I've written a lot of books, which I don't really, I don't know, I'm like not really counting, but I think I have a, um, I mean, I think I have, I have a strong compulsion to put my ideas and thoughts into la- into language. And so I always manage to get it done, you know, uh, how it gets done, you know, it's really more like fits and starts, like when I'm possessed by a book or an idea, then I just kind of work, I just don't let it, I don't really let it go and work on it in every spare moment. And then you know, the harder times in my life have just been probably when, when that book is done, you know, and then, um, but I'm learning to like that now. I, I used to not like it, but now I just feel well, like it's a surprise you know, early. It's like yeah. when you finish a book, you think it's going to be this great moment and there is yeah. something sort of like mournful about it when it's done. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, when you, cause before it's done, it could be anything. And as you work on it, it becomes more and more just the words that it's going to be in the order that they're going to run in looking like how they look on the page. And, you know, it, it, 
it's exciting. It's what you want the whole time, which is, you know, I want to finish it. I want to finish it. And then as it moves towards, um, you know, I feel like I'm kind of a half to three quarters of what I'm finished with what I'm working on now. And it, like, I already feel the morning and I'm not even, and I have so much work left to do, but I just already feel like I've tipped over to the, from the, what am I doing? What is this? Is it a book phase to like, you know, the crest of like, it is, there's enough of it that even if I hacked away half, it would still be you know, publishable. Publishable, still <laughs> right. be you know almost fifty thousand words. So, like, I feel a lot of liberty now to make it right. And then I that's then, a good feeling. There's like the trough ahead, though, of like, but I, but now I like the trough because I feel convinced that you know I think when you're young as a writer, you don't know if you'll keep writing. You know, it, it, there's always the trough ahead might always be like the trough where you fall off. But I don't. I know that that's not going to be true anymore for me. So it doesn't make me feel as... Okay. So take me through, like, I mean, and, you know, some of your books, I think, beg this more than others. Like, I feel like Bluettes makes me think, like, how did she make this? Uh Like other books, I think, um, you know, I do this with some books that I read. Like certain books, for whatever reason, you think, like, how was this assembled? Like, how did it become what it was? And, like, when you're working in particular in a nonfiction mode... Um, I was reading an interview with you where you were talking about the research process, which tends to happen when you're in between projects and you're yeah. sort of drifting. Yeah. You're just, you're, it's like input, yeah. which is such common sense. Yeah. But I think it's something that a lot of writers fail to do yeah. well enough. Like when you, when you don't have anything to say, or you feel adrift, read. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and read yeah. what interests you. Absolutely. And then yeah. eventually, is that what is that what you do? You oh, just yeah, start absolutely. binging on input, yeah. and then eventually you start yeah. to write down notes. And it doesn't even matter if you don't think. I was actually joking the other day that, like, to like relax, I watched X Men on pay per view like <laughs> about like six months ago or something at a hotel, and then I was writing something recently where I was drawing on the X Men movie. When you know, watching that that night was particularly exclusively like I'm not gonna do anything else, and then you know it comes back up, and I think. At least if you do the kind of writing I do, but a lot of people, I'm sure, fiction writers, other things, you know, that's the great thing about being a writer is almost everything can come back up and you never really know what it is that's going to stick, you know, and in a book like The Art of Cruelty or something, you know, or even Bluettes or something, just any, I mean, so many pieces of art I was pulling from my deep memory of things I'd seen that, that had troubled me in some provocative or stimulating way and with um, the art of cruelty yeah like so it was really fun to to realize it was kind of like a lifetime of of watching art and getting to you know so it had this definite feeling of like no wasted experience you know even things i'd walked out of i was writing about you know but you but you managed to corral it into an argument it was thematically you know what i'm saying like that you can have a lot of these art experiences but you found a thread right and the same thing with bluettes right yeah where you're working um in a you know literary collage mode yeah um how did you how did that begin like how did you get from the um sort of like drifting experience where you're just sort of randomly reading stuff and thinking and taking notes to where you reach the moment of epiphany where you realize you might have something yeah well it's like Henry James talked about, you know, like the, like the oyster with the pearl and always said like the, the oyster doesn't grow. Like it grows because the flesh around it's irritated. So it keeps growing. It's like an irritant. And I think, I mean, not like I don't experience pleasures or other things, but there is a sense in which uh, I'm kind of, kind of run hot in terms of like talking back to things I've seen or whatever. So, so those things are irritations. So they kind of demand like a, um, a kind of revisitation or perseveration in terms of thinking. So I think that, you know, in the case of like the blue book, 
I mean, the, uh, some things are just you behold. Is that what them you call it, the blue book? Yeah, I guess so, <laughs> or blue ads. But like some things are just beautiful, and there's not much to say. But oftentimes, you know, I would write out anecdotes of like, what do I, you know, here's this thing I have at my house I love. It's you know, and where did it come from? What? Why do I care about this blue thing? You know, like. I'm just thinking, for example, off the top of my head, I think at one point I read about this um, little piece of paper I had on my wall that said, you said, you said you think of blue, you know, that someone had given me. So I just wrote out the story of like that lover, that piece of paper, what happened between us, you know, it wasn't more than like a hundred words or something, but each of those little things, like there was a, you know, they, they, they have a reason for, for accumulation, but you don't always know what that reason is. You're just writing until them you down. you write it down, yeah. So you just started yeah. to think about blue. You started to write down little anecdotes related to blue, yeah. piece them together. You're thinking about Wittgenstein because you're very <laughs> smart. <laughs> well, I love... I'd always kind of wanted to write a book about the color blue, and I, I think I'd written... It's my favorite color. Is it really look fantastic? I know, look, you're up and down. Yeah. But I mean, I do this up like... Up and down, yeah. yeah. I think I am too. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that I, I wanted to write. I mean, it was interesting because I had sorry, written a lot of poems having to do with the color blue. I didn't like them. They just seemed like, I don't know, poetry color. It just seemed yucky. It's fraught. That's yeah, fraught territory. Yeah, it just was too, it was too lyric, too puffy. And so actually a lot of that book are poems that I just took away the line breaks and I started to like them better. But I think what was interesting about that book was that I was collecting the blue things and had this idea of this book for a long time. Because again, my love of the color blue was kind of an irritant. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I love that. You know, it was kind of like, no, I really love that. And like why? I, yeah. Like I remember being in Mexico and being taken, I don't think this bluette made it in there, but being taken to like a Mexican glass factory, you know, where they make that Mexican blue glass that you see right. everywhere. And, uh, and there were piles of it broken all over in the factory. And I just, you know, I was like, you know, you almost had to pull me out of there. I just was like, I can't stop looking at it. I feel like I need to stay here. You know, <laughs> there's you, something really important. And what is it? So, what I don't is it? know. I mean, you I have guess blue it's just eyes. beautiful. You know? Have you just been looking at your own eyes your whole, like, is, I have blue eyes too. I know. Is that why we like Well, blue? I do is ask it, that at one point in the book. I ask if there's some kind of, I say, you know, does the world look bluer from blue eyes? Self-aggrandizement, yeah. you know, but I think probably that's part of it, you know, because you're told I me mean, I have a baby right now, blue eyes, and everywhere we would go, everyone's like, wow, look at those blue eyes, right. you know, and, which is, you know, has its whole Aryan Scandinavian weirdness. But I think <laughs> that, um, but I like to think of it since blues travels many cultures, you know, not just those that it's, um, you know, I do think it's probably some kind of, yeah, it's some kind of foundational color that means something. Well, see, I really or, like you know. blue, and I really like, uh, and I like green, and I really like yellow. Interesting. I like Yellow's nature coming colors. into its own right now. I love yellow. Yeah. Like I'd love, like I, that, I think that might be like edging out blue at this point. Like it reminds me of lemons. There's something about lemons that I really like that make me happy. It's yeah. a happy color. It is. And well, like I say in the book, it's often considered very ugly in isolation, but uh, it's a. Uh, yeah, I don't know. People often ask if I'm going to do, like, another color. You know, I mean, Alexander Thoreau has this great book, The Primary Colors, and he did The Secondary Colors, which was so great because he did, you know, the primaries, and he did, like, purple, orange, and green or something, and it kind of had this sickly second book cast to it, which I loved, you know. But I, I don't think I – I don't think I – I don't care about other colors. No, I don't care about them, so there would be no irritant. You know, I couldn't get it going. Brown. Yeah, no. But I was going to just say that the interesting thing about that book was that I had this idea for a long time, but then the kind of things that make the book's engine – which were kind of this breakup, and then also my friend who'd had this accident, you know, those were not, um, those were not things that I ever imagined being part of that book. And then, so I think once you go to write, there's a kind of, uh, 
I'm very interested in the kind of performance or the present of writing when you're in something. So those were the things happening when I finally went to put down the blue stories. So they kind of made it cohere, I think, into something beyond, like you're saying, just the anecdote or the, the, the roving love. You have to, yeah, I mean, you can't, I mean, otherwise it's just like a, a kind of a mess. You have yeah. to have those through lines. Those are hard yeah. to, that's yeah. the hard part. Right. And, you know, I think when, I think literary collage in particular tempts you into thinking that it's just like, oh yeah, just stack them right. up. But like the assembly is very crucial yeah. and then the, the, the yeah. thematic uh, cohesion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why I'm probably a little bit more, I wouldn't say conservative or something than people hope, but I do think a lot of times, I mean, I think it's great to teach that book, say, as collage. That's fine. But uh, it's to me, it's very plotted and order is part of the art of, of you know, juxtaposition is interesting, especially in a poem on kind of a single page, but when you're working with, you know, many words over, you know, over 50 pages or something, it really, to me, it, it's not, it's spilling out in this way that has to be, you know, kind of, you're shaping the way the river's flowing, you right. know, so, right. and that's important to me, so I don't think of it as collage, really. So, okay. So, and you mentioned, uh, your friend had an accident. Right. And can you just talk, cause I'm sure listeners are thinking what happened? Like, can you talk right. a little bit about that and then how it factored into the writing of the yeah, book? Yeah. Well, it's so amazing because she was a very, and she still is a kind of private person, but she's actually writing right now a book called an account of myself all about her accident. So, and I just read the rough draft and it was terrific. So soon listeners will be able to read her account and that will be amazing. But she, uh, had a bicycle accident where she just had a, you know, like a branch stuck in the spoke of her road bike she rode every day after work and uh she was thrown and hit a um you know just was, was thrown so quickly the bike was going so fast and it was such a dead stop that actually a guy who saw it happen from the road stopped his car because he didn't know like it looked like a mirage she didn't know where she went you know because she was just gone so quickly oh and God. so she didn't have time to um put her hands up or anything so she fell on her chin and it cracked um destroyed a lot of her face and then cracked two of her cervical vertebrae, which left her with what they call an incomplete paralysis below that, the break. So, um, yeah, so that, so it was very, um, you know, it was funny cause I'd wanted to write a book about, about my idea with the blue book was I love say Sean against the pillow book. And I wanted to write, I started writing the blue book. Like I would come home and I would try and write like the most beautiful blue things I saw that day. And I had this idea of writing this pillow book about things that, that I loved, um, and then, you know, when I started writing the book, I wasn't, I didn't know that the love affair I was engaged in was going to go south and I didn't, you, oh, know, you didn't No, well, okay. maybe I did unconsciously, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. like if my, if like my, I'm going to write a book called yeah, bluettes, <laughs> no, I mean, if my, if my, you know, if my eyes had been open a little further, you know, one always can see the writing on the wall, but I think that I, you know, it could have gone, it could have gone many ways. So I was just writing, you know, writing kind of throughout and, and I ended up. You know, because through Wittgenstein, who writes a lot about color and pain and the way in which... And he wrote about that at a specific time in his life. Yeah, I mean, he did. He I... writes about color a lot. Uh, then he he also wrote a whole book called Remarks on Color. Right. And then he wrote, which he wrote when he was dying of stomach cancer. But he, you know, philosophical investigations is really saturated. Because, because saturated with color uh, problems because color presents a very particular perceptual problem that he was interested in about how we know um how we can compare my sense knowledge against yours in the world and you know how can we both touch the tree and be sure that we both see and know the tree and and so anyway pain her pain became kind of my 
it was both a place to write about it and it also became very interesting to me just to spend so much time with someone in so much pain that they couldn't describe and how you hurt because they're hurt, you know, and empathy, but the major chasm is that you really don't, I mean, really didn't know what she could possibly be experiencing in this new prison that that she had to endure as her new body, you know. So yeah. all that just got, got um, you know, dumped on and dumped in there and meditated upon. There's so much, yeah, there's so much chaos in life. Like, I, I, I don't know, I was thinking of uh, people I've talked to recently on this show who've been through stuff or people have died or I was, yeah, people in my own, like, it's just always there. I know. And you think it's not and, I know. you know, crazy stuff happens. Yeah, you just swerve in and out of it too, you know. Sometimes mm. a bunch of things happen in succession, other times, you know. You're scot-free. It's like, hey, you know, smooth sailing. <laughs> I know, it's just wild, you know. It's so, wild. um the art of cruelty. Yeah. Cause I like, you know, looking at your, uh, how do you say oeuvre? Is that how you say it? I don't know. I like that. Yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Looking at your books. Um, do you have a sense of like the, the thematic, uh, through line, the big things that you're concerned with as an artist and as a person, uh, violence, right? Yeah. Pain. I mean, I see it. I see it for sure. I mean, it's, you know, there's no plan. So, you know, every book is just like, Oh dear God, like what, what <laughs> next? You know, um, there's no plan, but I do think, I mean, you know, for a while because of Jane and the red parts and the art of cruelty, those three books are all concerned with violence and representation basically. Right. Um, so, but you know, to me, bluets and I wrote a book about women in the New York school of poets and painters in New York from the fifties to the present. And, uh, and can I just make yeah. a joke about yeah, that book? Please do, yeah. Like that book was, uh, it was a, it's like a feminist work. Indeed. I think that's a, fa- a fair assessment. Yeah. And it won the Glasscock Award. I know. Isn't that I, funny? I, yeah. I, know. I was I reading a, up and I was like, that's sort of funny. I, I want know. to mention that on the show. But it's a Glasscock. We have, um, <laughs> we have the, uh, of all places in the world, Texas A&M gave that book a prize and I went down to get it and they gave me a, a book clock. It's like one of those clocks that you open in the shape of a book and it says, you know, the glass cock award from Texas A&M and it's so bizarre, but I came home and was like, look what I got. So now it's, and it's been in our kitchen ever since. So every day I see the Texas A&M glass cock book award and it's just, it's like one of my favorite things I've ever gotten from writing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the kitchen seems like the appropriate place. And it keeps going. You know? Right. <laughs> it just keeps on trucking that clock. You know? When the clock have ever been broken everyone's like where's the book clock sorry that's the glass cock clock that's a glass oh god yeah yeah. this gets tricky yep okay so um the art of cruelty uh red parts and jane yeah uh let's talk about jane because i feel like people who um might not be familiar with your work uh would benefit from understanding because i feel like that's a that's such a central part of your life and especially your creative life so why don't you talk about her? It certainly was, you know, I think it was, I mean, one of the good things people often ask me about catharsis or writing or when you write about difficult things, but I do think that for my early writing life, the murder of my aunt, my mother's younger sister, who I didn't know because she was murdered shortly before I was born, uh, there was some kind of uh, knot that had developed about, she was 23 when she was murdered, and there was some kind of, in my early years as a writer, some kind of hump I had to get over about, uh, I thought of her as, you know, the, the, the woman who goes for what she wants and is very ambitious and, you know, and aggressive and smart and talented. And, and then because she was so cruelly, literally shot down, you know, there was some kind of, uh, yeah, what happened? Well, she was a student at university of Michigan. Her name was Jane Mixer and she, uh, was, 
two years my mother's junior and she was one of six women ever to have been admitted to the University of Michigan Law School so she was a student there and um, she was coming home to her parents house over spring break and was they had a you know what many colleges have like a, you know now it would be online but it was a physical ride board where you posted where you wanted to go and and um, somebody agreed to give her a ride back home and then she was last seen um, you know, in the dorm, getting ready to take this ride at 6.30, and then she was, whoever picked her up, um, shot her and strangled her and left her in a rural cemetery about just a few miles from the University of Michigan campus. And it was a very complicated time, and it was 1969, but it was also um, many young girls and women in the Ann Arbor area had been murdered, so they began to call them the Michigan murders, and they thought hers was number three of eight. Um, that eventually were committed. So, and, But her murder went unsolved, and when they uh, convicted a man named John Collins for, I think, the eighth, maybe, or the seventh, Karen Sue Bynum's murder, when they convicted him, people kind of felt as though, even though he was only tried for one, that perhaps they had... Um, Maybe they would, could all, you know, be Just solved. <laughs> yeah, done. We got um, it. But a lot of people always thought that Jane's murder was very distinct from those murders, and uh, a particular detective, Eric Schroeder of Michigan State Police, you know, um, and others, but Schroeder in particular were, you know, stayed on the case as a cold case for for some time. And when there was a DNA hit, there was a DNA hit for it in 2005 from a new, you know, these new databases are cropping up all the time, and this person whose DNA made a match in the system was, he was the, I think he was maybe the first person under the new Michigan law saying nonviolent felons, you know, he was convicted of forging a Vicodin prescription at the hospital where he was a nurse. And the new law said that all nonviolent felons had to submit DNA to the um, data bank. And, you know, lo and behold, his DNA shot up a match to my aunt's material, which had been entered, you know, 36 years prior into CODIS, they call it. So it was a very, um, so Jane, a murder I wrote when her murder was unsolved and when I figured it was just sitting, you know, it was just never going to be brought up again. And then right when it was going to print, this thing happened with this CODIS hit and, um, and then the ensuing trial. So I kind of, you know, I really had felt like I was done with the subject because Jane, I spent about eight years researching and writing and eight years yeah i mean you know not eight years like working very hard on but but it 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 took eight years for me to uh, like accept i was doing it because it felt i mean now it's a little odd to think about but it felt very very fraught at the time it felt like i really um i think because i was you know that kind of cliched way because there was a lot of family silence i just didn't want to ask and i didn't so i started off on my own trying to learn about her murder and then i eventually knew i was gonna once i had kind of amassed enough research or info i knew i was gonna have to tell my mother who was the main person that was you know i was close to that what i was up to and i just really thought that she might you know have a nervous breakdown or something (laughs) and uh and she didn't and and then when that when the DNA hit was made and then her case was literally reopened, you know, there was a weird, I think it was a weird kind of moment in my family where I was very, it was very like, oh, Maggie had been onto something like, you know, that this wasn't really done in a way that I think prior that, you know, it was much more like, why are you still talking about this? Why do you care what happened to your Aunt Jane? You know, that was a really long time ago. And then suddenly it wasn't in the past. Suddenly it was in real time in the present. And there was a, you know, murder trial 
that went for three weeks, and then I wrote the book, The Red Parts, about attending that trial. Okay, so, I mean, where do I start? I feel like, you know, you never knew your aunt, you never met her, but I can only imagine, because I have a, I have, my dad's sister was killed in a drunk driving accident, Uh, I never met her. Yeah. But, you know, same but different. Yeah. But it's like the specter of that hung over his parents for sure and his family, and it was something that definitely affected me, and there was always the picture of her above the mantle. Yeah. You know, were you the, nervous about anything in particular, or was it just... What do you mean, nervous about... Like, were there, was there anxiety in your family around the way she died? Like, be careful in cars, or don't drink and drive, or was it... I think or, I definitely took don't drink and drive to heart. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, but I, it was just, you know, there was just like my grandparents you could just see. Yeah. And it's a really hard thing. Yeah. I mean, it was like yeah. two days before Christmas, that yeah. kind of thing. So. Yeah. Um, but I can only imagine when somebody yeah. in your family, even if you've, ne- even if you never got the chance to meet them, yeah. dies in such a dark and violent yeah. way. Yeah. Like as a child, when was that information presented yeah. to you? And like, how did you process well, it? Well, that's and- the thing is, it's funny. You know, I think in writing about my family, I've learned this as I've gone along. As I'm writing something again that is, you know, touches on my family, and I and I feel much more able now to give my my mother in particular, but other people kind of more props than I have in the past. I think that when you're younger, you know, you're writing out all of your frustrations, or you know, and, and there's a very natural thing if you talk to like, you know, Holocaust survivors or whomever. You know, there's a very kind of natural thing where like the you know the generation to whom something horrible didn't happen is very like, why aren't they talking about this? You know, right. and is kind of like badgering them to like quote unquote you know come to grips with something that happened when in fact you know they came to grips in their own way it happened to them you know so my curiosities or whatever were and i would also say that i guess now having children in my own household i'm much easier on the idea that you know no one I can imagine it would be hard to have known when when you should like sit someone down and be like, just so you know, you know, I once had a younger <laughs> sister, but she was snatched up and strangled and murdered, and you know, body was sexually molested, and she was left to you know to die, in the, you know, in the cemetery. So I, I can imagine there wasn't probably a, a natural moment for that conversation to have taken place. Do you, you remember know? it? No, I don't think it ever did. You know, how did think, you find out about it? Well, I think. That, you know, like you, like there's the picture over the mantle and right. you're like, and you know, yeah, how did I find I'm, out I'm sure about that, my aunt? Yeah, like they, they dribble out information. So, you know, you know, my mother had a sister, you know, her name was Jane, you know, she died young. And then probably when you get a little older, you get the news, you know, that she was murdered, you know, and um, I mean, I have an eight year old stepson and when he went through a very heavy gun phase, I mean, I think I told him at some point, you know, it's not. I mean, I probably when he was way too young, but I think I was trying to impress upon him that, you know, even though it was super funny and whatever fun for them, but like around my mother or anyone, you never really know. There are people all around you who've lost people to gun violence. And, you know, at least in my family, I've kind of inherited that, you know, I, I really have a kind of, um, you know, I really can't handle the fa- even fake guns in my house. It's just not something that, I mean, God, I mean, in every day, whether it's Newtown or whatever, I'm sure there are a lot of people joining this this feeling. But I don't I was, like guns at all. Yeah, I was just trying to tell him, you know, like, if you point that gun, that plastic gun at my mother, she'll she'll shriek and she might weep. Like, and, and I think I told him, I guess what I'm getting to, I think I said her sister was murdered and by a gun and gun violence. You know, but I think, but in retrospect, I'm like, why was I telling, you know, he's probably five. Like, does he need to know that? Right. You know, I don't know, you know, but those are the kind of things. I don't think... So I knew about her existence, and I think as I got older, um, I actually think I tell this story in some book, maybe the red parts, but um, 
I always saw a book on my mom's bookshelf called The Michigan Murders, and it was, you know, like lurid and red and, you know, fat, like a kind of thornbirds looking book, you know, like shorter, squatter, you know, like a Valley of the Dolls looking book as opposed to a, you know, whatever, right, right, or whatever, because she's a business writing uh, teacher. And I was like, what in the heck is that book? I think one day, you know, one day I pulled it down and you know, got the news. It had all changed names, but I, I figured out pretty quickly what was going on in it. And, you know, and it was, I mean, particularly the other girls, uh, in that murder series, I mean, their murders were, you know, the kind of things that like, you know, makes the movie like the movie seven pale in comparison. I was just thinking of the movie seven. Yeah, no, not, not a good movie for me. Yeah, right. Um, but I think that that, you know, I think when I, I think that was also I kind of realized why no one had really talked about these things too because I mean still even sitting here talking to you about it things are going through my head that I that I just wish had never you know things that could happen to a human body that I just wish I'd never really known about so so did it make you more fearful as a child like well, especially as you got became an adolescent if oh, you had, yeah yeah I mean yeah. how did it affect you psychologically and it's like how did you yeah how do you reckon with that? Well, I think my sister and I, and I think both of those books, Jane and The Red Parts, you know, really ended up being about about many things, but one of them being about female sexuality and how you kind of come into it because for so many girls, you know, that, I mean, maybe for boys too, but in a different way, but, you know, you're, you're coming into desire um, and an interest in recklessness as you're also coming into, you know, a knowledge of some really bad things that can happen to you and, and this kind of, you know, imperative to protect yourself at the same time. And it's very difficult, you know, to negotiate. And uh, I think I had this older sister who who negotiated it very differently than I. And so How she, so? well, she was, you know, she, she took the, she took the reckless track. I mean, not, not a hundred percent. She was truly reckless. She wouldn't have made it, you know, but she, she was, um, no, I mean she got she pregnant what? at thirteen, and she, you know, eighth grade, and she was oh, kicked wow. out of school in ninth grade, and she was at her first reform school by, you know, by the start of tenth grade, which was a all girls lockdown in Utah, and then she ran away from home, and she lived on the streets, and she went to juvenile hall. Well, that's a pretty then, good. That's a pretty good reckless. Yeah, good to reckless. Yeah, it was a long strip. <laughs> and then she went to like a kind of hoods in the woods school in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, and then she graduated from there, and then she was eighteen, and she went off to University of Oregon and was a women's studies major and like had a great, you know, just like kind of just never looked back on is she brilliant? time. Yeah, she's great. She's amazing. But I mean, like, yeah. is she really like objectively, is she brilliant? I think she's brilliant. Yeah. I okay. mean, she's not, she doesn't make her living as an intellectual per se. I just you feel know? like people but, like yeah. that sometimes are yeah. smarter than the rest of us who like went to lunch and had the cafeteria. Her depth of experience is, I would say, incredibly rich and she is able to, you know, she's met... And hung out with a lot of really different kinds of people, you know, she's throughout her life. She's got some good life. stories. And yeah, she's got good stories. And, you know, she's, um, you know, she's in no small terms, you know, a hero of mine. But I was, but when I was little and we were two years apart, uh, you know, that did not, did not look like, you know, I was, I was very <laughs> nervous to have any of those. Not so much to do. The, the thing is that was weird about Emily, my sister and me, is that. You know, I was, you know, we were doing the same drugs or doing the same sexual things or doing the same, you know, getting in the car that you shouldn't get into or whatever. But, you know, I think, um, you know, I think I just, she was kind of doing it just pitched in, in this different way where I was kind of more like, you know, just, I just had like, you know, a, a, a toe in the, wor- you know, more of the worry, you know, yeah, just a little bit more responsible. And so I think it just, um, 
And so I think it was a little ironic. You know, I think she always felt like, why am I in so much trouble when nobody else is in trouble? But I think the way also gave it that pitch, it wasn't just a double standard. It was a, basically it was that she was in pain, you know, and therefore she, her pain was making her more reckless. Whereas I was, I was in pain, but it wasn't the same kind of um, thing. So I think that I guess back to Jane, that we both I think were suffering from, from, I mean, we would have suffered adolescence the way anybody does. But I think that. Um, you know, my sister was willing to hitchhike. She was willing to do things. I mean, even living on the street that to me were just, um, you know, I was just sure that you would, you know, really come to, you know, no good. That first ride that you took, I mean, I think I've hitchhiked once in my life and I just was sure the entire time that I was going to be, you know, end up like my aunt just because the injunction in my house was very strong about getting into cars with strangers. Well, I've no, yeah, me too. But I hitchhiked a lot just out of college when I was hiking on the Appalachian trail Mm -hmm. and it was always it was always like you have your thumb out, and I'm always like looking at the kind of yeah. the, what kind of car is it? I know. What does right? the driver look like? And then yeah. if you see someone who looks somewhat sketchy, you kind of pull your thumb right. in. Yeah. And the hardest ride that I ever had to get was on like a weird country highway in Maine. Interesting. And it took because it took forever. There was yeah. nobody back there. Yeah. And then finally, this uh, truck com- pickup truck comes yeah. by, but it's got a coverall on the back. Yeah. So the, the payload was enclosed. Yeah, yeah. And this guy pulls over, and he's sort of humorless and yeah. bearded. And, you know, probably 35 at the time. Yeah. And, and uh, he's like, get in back. So oh, I get no. in back and then he shuts it? the coverall. Oh, so no. I'm like in this pod. What was back there? Just like tools. Yeah. And, you know, and the guy turned out to be fine, but it was like, I can't get out of here. Yeah. I don't like, I like, yeah. I love to be in the back. I'd love to get yeah. rides in a pickup truck where it was open. Yeah. Because if anything shady happens, you can just jump. Yeah, exactly. But I yeah. felt like boxed in. Yeah. And like he could have just driven me, yeah. you know, who knows where. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I think I remember when I was in college, my writing teacher was Annie Dillard and she was a very, you know, strong influence on me in ways I didn't perceive at the time and would have disavowed, but have since come home to roost. But, you know, Annie was always saying that, you know, she hated the feminists on campus because they were always trying to tell women not to go be alone in nature, whereas Annie's whole gig was to be alone, be a pilgrim in nature. And I, you know, that for some reason, that conundrum, because I was very, you know, into the feminist you know, activism at my, at college when I was studying with her, you know, and I thought Annie was wrong, but I also, I think I've just noticed, you know, now as I'm more like, I help my students say, and they like write about the crazy things they do. And there's of course part of me that's like, Oh God, don't do that. And there's another part of me that's like, yeah, you know, you're making your claim on public space in this way and you're asserting your right to the road and your right to whatever. And, and, um, and that's why I really like, I think I write about in the art of cruelty or some book somewhere about like, I love how you're just like I, one of my books. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's all. They're kind of all like you say. They're similar subjects. But Cookie Mueller, you know, Cookie Mueller. She was a John Waters actress, and uh, she was in Pink Flamingos. She's the person who has sex with the chicken and crackers. Anyway, but but Cookie has this great book called uh, Walking Through Water in a Pool Painted Black, and she has just some just amazing stories about being on the road in her life, and you know about about you know crazy guys trying to rape you, but you know and thinking that. But but it's like you all. It's just one of the best books I know that dramatizes that kind of thing. Everyone always says, but it's difficult to to have dramatized well, which is like they were out there and they were doing this stuff. And then there's a very clear moment in the stories where you're like, and this is not okay for this. You know, it's not just because they're doing this does not mean this thing should be happening right now at all. Right. So it was very you know moving to me. The books that are able to dramatize that difficult point for our culture. Well, know? and we also, we all have like moments, or at least I know I have moments where I look back on uh, my wayward youth and stupid things that I did that could have so easily gone yeah. so badly. I know. And they didn't. Yep. And it's just luck. I know. That's it is a lot of luck. I mean, know? do you have that? Yeah. And you know, now that you're 
Now, when one's raising kids, you're like, let the luck be with me, right, you know, because right. you know that you're going to have them, you know. Oh. And I mean, in Jane's case, she was not a. Um, I don't know what I don't know what the mores were at that moment about getting a ride from the ride board or something, but it was, this was not a you know this was like a you know a a, a school sanctioned. Uh, a school sanctioned board. It wasn't, you know, she wasn't out there hitchhiking. I always thought she had been hitchhiking and it was actually kind of news to me to learn that she had just been, um, it's you know, going to, going to her school union center. And, you know, when I visited and up to write about it and saw the ride board and saw how codified the whole system was, you know, it was very, I mean, I think that's part of the pain of whether it's Newtown or, you know, any, these universe, you know, whenever there's like the, you know this whole movement to like get guns on <laughs> university campuses, you know, because for me as someone who's a kind of devoted pedagogue and loves um, that environment, you know, just I can understand why she would probably think that there wasn't, you know, within this matrix there wasn't going to be, you know, somebody wishing to do her radical harm that would be at the student union and responding to her call, you know, and it's just so sad that there was. Just, yeah, just bad, terrible luck yeah. and just a crazy predator. Yeah. You know, uh, where were you raised? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. And like, then I moved to New York for many years, and I just moved here about eight years ago. Okay. So whereabouts, in, like your whole childhood was San Francisco? Pretty much, yeah. Marin County, San Francisco, Marin County, Mill Valley, and then uh, I went to high school in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Did you really? I did. Oh, see, that sounds kind of idyllic to me. That was great. I went to an amazing high school. It was called the Urban School, and it's very, it was just... It's super progressive and super community service oriented, and and Mill Valley you know. is like mecca. For, I mean, it's like the, ni- it's the most beautiful place in it's the gorgeous. country, and it's yeah. everyone's like healthy and. Yeah, you know. I mean, you know, of course, we hated it growing up the way you yeah. hate, like where you grow up, and you hate the, you know, I mean, it's also intensely moneyed and kind of you know mountain bike disgusting, you know, recreators. <laughs> I don't the, like you know. when people like when you're at the coffee because I went to college in Boulder, so I, right. I remember being at like at the coffee shop and it's the people in their like spandex bike outfits right. like clicking in those shoes. I know exactly. I have like I, have, like, I a, served a lot of them at Pete's Coffee and Tea in downtown Mill yeah. Valley. <laughs> right. you know, over, like, since I was 15, when I hear that clicking sound, I, I literally cringe and like just yeah. like brace myself. I don't know. I don't know what it is about that. I mean, the area is beautiful, and it had, you know, it had been a. You know, we bought our house from the house that my mom, you know, lived in for the longest time from, you know, Santana and the Doobie Brothers had lived there before that. And you know, so there was, and we lived next door to, what's his name? You know, Bob Weir or something from the dead. But like, or no, it wasn't him, Bob Wasserman. Is that anyway, it doesn't matter. But there was like a whole, um, you know, there was like the, it, it's the, it was the, the tail end of that whole culture, but the 80s were clearly bringing in a whole different set thing. yeah but you know my sister was like a skinhead goth and you know when she was you know like we were like the hippie thing and when i went to high school on the hate ashbury it was a very anti you know, the relationship yeah with the hippies stuff was really fraught See, okay you know? so this is this has always fascinated me about myself <laughs> and it's also sort of cringeworthy but you know we all do stupid stuff in our youth you but... were deadhead oh totally yeah and, I, and you know what i still am <laughs> yeah. i love i love yeah. i think their experiment i think there's a lot of positive things like it's easy to bash and I don't want to do that yeah, yeah. because um, that's not how I really feel. Yeah. No, I know? don't feel like that. And I have a nostalgia for yeah. it because I was raised in the Midwest and everything, you know, like culturally is yeah. so far behind, like yeah. decades behind. Where really. were you raised? Um, I was born in Milwaukee, junior high and high school in Indiana. Okay. And I almost feel like Indiana is even further behind than Milwaukee. Yeah. But I mean, like, it was like, I grew I loved the music of the 60s. Yeah. I love the music of my parents' generation yeah. better than they do. Yeah. My I parents, know. like, were completely, you know, disconnected. Yeah. They're Southern yeah. folk and yeah, yeah. 
we didn't even have music in our house. Right, right, know? right. It was like yeah. Amish or something. Yeah. <laughs> Not really, but, <laughs> right. you know, it just, it wasn't that they didn't want us to have it. They just, we didn't have a stereo, yeah. you know, in yeah. my house. Yeah. We still give my parents shit about that. But, Interesting. Or at least yeah. I do. But, yeah. um, so when, uh, the culture of Mill Valley, yeah. that like you guys, like that was totally yesterday's news. <laughs> When that showed up right. in my town, right. yeah, yeah. it was like the the newest the new thing, thing ever. Right. I was like, yeah, holy yeah. shit, like right. people are free and like, yeah. this is crazy. And like, yeah. I was so ready for it because yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. so bored. Yeah. Yeah. But then I look at it in hindsight and I'm yeah. like, dude, I was so behind the curve. Yeah. Well, some of the best moments I feel like of my childhood or my adolescence were, you know, running around in some, you know, flimsy sundress at a dead show, you know, making bubbles or whatever, you know, because it was about... You know, because then there was another part, like the gothic part, that was all, you know, deep into like, you know, just you know, dressing all black, alien sex fiend, just, you know, total, complete <laughs> nihilism. You know, that was like where my sister was at. And, you know, it was, I I think I was, you know, there were people like Pink Floyd that were like kind of navigating the, you know, in between like the walls, really like, you know, nightmarish. But then you could also bliss out to, you know, dark side of the moon right, <laughs> whatever, right, you know, right. Led Zeppelin was kind of like, when you start getting sexual, they're there to like pick, you know, kick in the speed. But, um... But yeah, no, it was very, I I think that having this sense of that rebellion could be like a really happy sense of freedom where you just danced for hours, you know, was really, I, had a, I went to a lot of dead shows. I had a good time. See, I've come to view it. I've come to view its appeal, especially its appeal among my generation, well, everyone's generation, you know, that was yeah. into it. But I, I see it as like a secular church. Yeah. That was like really messy. Yeah. But like the sacraments were the drugs and the yeah. music was just you know, a lot yeah. more invigorating than like your typical yeah. gospel choir or whatever. Yeah. And that's what it was. Yeah. It was just like a secular church for people who had drifted from yeah. their foundation yeah. or whatever. And yeah. I think that it was also a really dynamic experience because, you know, the reality is it could be the dead. It could be anyone. It could right. be Zamfir with a pan flute. Right. Yeah. When you're on enough acid, <laughs> you can right. have like yeah, a transcendental yeah. experience totally. at any live music yeah. event. So like yeah. that combination, yeah. which they sort of just stumbled into. Yeah was like fortunate yeah. from a community building yeah, perspective for sure because people are waking up the next day like what the fuck happened yeah you know? yeah, like, yeah yeah and that's how i was i was like wow that was that was yeah. like I, I would have experiences yeah. in that environment yeah. that i felt like were what church should have been or yeah, something I know. it's really hard to imagine because i can't imagine like dropping a kid of mine off at like one of those huge stadium shows and be like have fun right. you know i'll be see, i'll be back at the cow palace in three hours i mean because like the <laughs> stuff that would happen and those three hours and like the stuff you would see in like the triage tent with the people bugging out on drugs and like you know just all this stuff and you know, people just keep coming up to me like, you know, you're too young to smoke. And you'd be like, Pff. you know, it was, yeah. just, it was just crazy. Like, we just would pack in. But, you know, all it was just, you know, I mean, I saw more stuff at those It was those the shows, circus. You know? The circus it came was. to town in the summer. Really That's was. what it felt like. And I was I like, know. let's go to the circus, you know. So, I don't know. I, I'm a little wistful about it. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was like I was 18. It was the yeah. dawn of my, yeah. I don't know, awakening or something. Um, so, okay. So, San Francisco, Mill Valley. Like, are you, you come from creative folk? No, actually, I don't. I come from, a, my father was a lawyer and the first person in his, you know, he was, his parents were from Sweden and, you know, he was, they, all, all Midwesterners, all kind of like, you know, you know, from second, where? third generation Midwesterners from, from, from Sweden and from, but, I mean, in, oh, in Muskegon, Michigan, that Michigan. area. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and my mother came, you know, her dad was a dentist and she was, um, I mean, she went, she got an MA in English and wrote a, 
Well, there you go. Thesis on Virginia Woolf, and then she and she taught English, but then you know quit it all to raise us. And she was of the generation where you know she thought she might want to get a PhD in English, but she was discouraged at being at childbearing age and stuff, which you know is still a huge issue, you know, in the in the academic field because you have to do all this work, kind of usually precisely from twenty to forty to uh, to to get things going for you. So it's, it can be a hard time for for women in the field, but um. But yeah, but but she does business writing, and you know my mom is another hero of mine, also whom I occasionally think of, especially like with poetry. You know, my whole like we're both very enmeshed with words, but sometimes I think that you know everything I've done has been like a subterfuge to not speak as directly <laughs> as she teaches everybody to speak. But at the same time, I have a real. I think within the fields I write in, I have probably more addiction to a certain kind of clarity than. Um, than some of my peers and colleagues. I, so, I'm a, I mean, I'm all about clarity. I just talked yeah. about this in a recent episode, but it's yeah. like, for me, that's what I am starved for in writing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I recoil when things are uh, too complex, not because I don't want complexity, but yeah. just because I feel like if you're bringing me to a book and you can't say mm-hmm. it simply, right, 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 with clear, you can't say it with clarity. Right. It doesn't mean that the, you have to use like short declarative sentences, yeah. but it just yeah, yeah, means yeah. there has to be like that real, right. Yeah. Direct line. Yeah. It can't go, it needs to go down easy. I mean, it was interesting with the art of cruelty because I know a lot of people felt like it didn't have like a clear thesis or something and it, and it really doesn't. So, you know, kudos to them for, for noticing <laughs> that fact. But I think that, you know, it was more of an enterprise of, um, how to write very clearly about ambivalent experience, you know? And I think yeah. that that to me is, a, you know, at least when I was writing that book was a worthwhile uh, goal. Well, and, and the other thing about that book that I'm interested in that kind of like resonates with me right now is that I've been thinking so much about consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's something that I think I need to write about because it's mm-hmm. one of those things that just keeps itching in my head mm-hmm. and like consumption uh, in a broader context, like not just like uh, what we read, mm-hmm. but what we watch, what mm-hmm. we look at artistically, yeah. what we eat, everything yeah, and everything. like how we... Yeah. Um, spend money and yeah. the, how we allocate resources yeah. and like it's this big yeah. huge thing it really is and um when it comes to yeah. and we, you know this sort of takes us full circle back to when we were talking about at the top of the show with respect to social media yeah and the internet and what we consume because yeah. the internet's probably the biggest it, it is, elephant yeah. in the room when it comes yeah. to consumption on an yeah. everyday basis but um how do you feel you know because you you wrote this book about violence mm-hmm. and uh the obsession with mm-hmm. violence in the arts, which I don't think has left us by any mm-hmm, stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm really of the mind and I've become more so recently, mm-hmm. I think maybe because I have a kid mm-hmm. that it really matters. Mm-hmm, I used mm-hmm. to be so like, Oh, whatever I can handle it. Yeah. It's just a Tarantino movie. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's yeah. like, what the, you watch yeah. some of this stuff. Like I, uh, Django yeah. Unchained. Yeah. I was revolted. Did you, you go see it? I did. And yeah. I had to turn away. Yeah. And like, I, yeah. Ten years ago, I would have called myself a pussy, but now yeah. I'm like, what? It, like, yeah. it makes me think yeah. that we're so accepting of this, and that yeah, be, yeah. we can just sit there and receive it. Uh, I'm wondering about the downside of that more yeah. intensively than I yeah. used to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't. The, the irony of that whole book is that some people have said, like, "Wow, you know, I had to quit reading on page 20. The things she's talking about are so, you know, I can't like deal with the descript- even the descriptions of them." But I'm, I'm like the ultimate squeamish person. And I think for me, you know, I don't, I don't take in a lot, especially in pop culture, because I just am not, um, I feel like art, like directors, especially of like popular movies, I've had to have had my 
trust like they've had to have gained my trust in some way that would make me feel like it's going to be worthwhile, you know, and I feel like Tarantino, I just don't feel like I have any trust relationship. With. A lot, a lot of people do, you know, a lot of people really feel like they're his visions worth it. Um, I've seen every one of his know. movies. I really, yeah. and I, you know what I, I, um, Inglorious Bastards, I yeah. loved. Interesting. And it's sitting there scalping people yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. they're doing all this stuff. So, Interesting. but I, I yeah. wonder, and, this is the other side of it, I think, yeah. is that I quit watching cable. Te- I got rid of cable television, mm-hmm. and I quit watching cable news in particular because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I used to be a junkie. Uh huh. Which which kind of cable news? Everything. Everything. Like <laughs> like right, yeah, like yeah. a bad yeah. crack addict. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is like the crystal meth of media, yeah. and yeah, yeah. not only that, but reading it. Yeah. And I just so I just sort of finally just said no, and I unplugged yeah. myself from all of that, and yeah. I'm noticeably less stressed out. Interesting. And so then it makes yeah. me say, well, what about the rest the of this? Media is very stressful. And I, I don't have a TV, but I was just staying in a hotel last week in Portland, and I was watching for you know like two hours the the most recent tornado, you know, waiting for it to touch down yeah. and more. And like the coverage is so intense, you would think like it's like you know the, what's happening in the whole planet has boiled down to when right. and will will this touch down and more. Right, and I was like, right. I'm calling home where like you guys heard about the tornado they're like whatever like i mean just totally but you know it's whole idea is to suck you into this it's happening now it's really intense i can't i can't even it's like facebook i can't even i can't even bear i mean the idea that i would have that like on a crawl in my living room would be like inviting the devil that's right into my life but see this is where this is why you're smarter than i am like (laughs) you're a smart person you know you might be able to tolerate it more no i I need to get rid of it i'm glad that i did that's why i'm making i'm coming late to these realizations and epiphanies and i mean a lot of it was just like also I feel like living though I didn't you know like I lived for 15 years in New York and I don't and I know a soul who had a TV or ever watched a TV we just just not anything we did you know what I mean so it's just I think it's also just like but I don't know I mean it wasn't there weren't these shows like Mad Men or whatever. I didn't know anybody who like sat at home and watched him. We went to the bar, you know, and we were out doing <laughs> we were stuff. Drinking. You were drinking for God's sake. It was very undemonic and, you know, wholesome and worthwhile for our brains. No, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it was just a lot more um, like you never would live in an apartment that was worthy of staying in for well, an that's evening. New York. Yeah, that's exactly. actually good. Though, you were just out. Gets yeah. you back out into the exactly. world. No, L.A. to me was very... Um, I mean, I think I, I didn't, but I think it would have dawned on me more to get a television here. And obviously, we're in the belly of the beast of television, but it was more just that people stay home, you know. So you so. don't watch anything? No series, nothing? Well, right now, the... Except for like the... <laughs> I've been watching The Voice. Yeah. I, the day after. Oh, The Voice. The day after on the, you know, the day after the episode airs. Right. <laughs> but that's just really like a... I mean, I think last year we watched a little bit of So You Think You Can Dance because uh, it's the same thing. It's like a it's like a mind clearer, you know. That's but, a, uh, and that can be sort of. I mean, so you think? But you they're can really dance. short. They're like twenty minutes, you know, condensed. So it's not like you're watching, you know, you know, seasons upon seasons of something, right? You know, which would be fine. But again, it's just like a time thing for me. You know. Yeah, you're disciplined. I don't know. I mean, you I don't know people do will. it. I only have. I mean, right now I have a little baby, and I have a babysitter. You know two or three times a week for three hours and those are my only writing hours so you know i try and start like right after she gets there <laughs> well what are you uh what are you working on are you willing to talk about it i don't know maybe not you know i mean it's 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 like it's kind of autobiographical about the last few years another and, nonfiction. Uh, yeah it's nonfiction. Yeah, the non-fiction. last few years anything more you want to tease the nation? The nation? No, <laughs> <laughs> not yet. It's yeah, no, not yet. It hasn't fully formed enough yet. Is that what it is, or you just don't want to? You don't. You're superstitious. I'm superstitious. I get that. Yeah. But see, in the past, I've over talked. 
See, this yeah. is it. This is it. This is a representation. The last two minutes of this conversation <laughs> are a direct representation of what I was talking about with regret with regard to the, the Grateful Dead and like sixties culture. Right. You knew not to have a TV and to like stay away from all this stuff like ten or fifteen years ago, and now I'm finally getting it. Right. Well, in my like you know country bumpkin way. But the weird thing is, is that it does it bears no. There's not like a rule that like people who are, you know, I mean, I know very productive, intelligent people who are able to do, you know, have like seven social media things going on and taking all this stuff in. So I really think it just, I really think it means like just figuring out who, what you can handle and also noticing what's happening to you as a person, you know, like. But the thing is, is it, okay. I think you can do that. I know people, it's, you know, it's obvious you can do, you can do multiple social media feeds and have a huge internet presence. Right. And, but, you know, A, do these people, are they married? Do they have families? Because right. I think that's, right. it gets hard. It takes hard. a lot of time away from... But then, you, I don't, I think it might be objectively true that it has a negative impact on your internal world. I mean, it's like you're like leading me in this direction. I should be actually, if I took the gloves off, I would be completely, I'm ready to totally go there. But I feel like I can only speak for myself because I don't know. I can't say about all my friends like or other people I know like, wow, this is really having a negative impact on you. I mean, I'll, there are times in which I feel haunted by like, you know, I'm walking around and it's as if everyone... You know, it'll dawn on me that they're all a part of the secret society, you know, because people will be like, oh, my God, you didn't know about that party? Oh, right. It you happened on Facebook. Facebook. Right. So there are these moments. But then I think, you know, I'm always talking about this with my partner, Harry. We're like, but, you know, is there any event really that we've ever missed ever because we didn't get invited? No, like we we're at the same shit everybody else and you know what the one that the one that you want to miss so, is the one that like probably so you know right, the only yeah. way in was through social media yeah so it just you know i really don't think i don't know i, I just you know until there's some compelling you know reason then we'll see yeah. well well you know twitter eagle you know eagerly awaits your arrival i don't even know what twitter does twitter's twitter's the only one that i yeah. still do i got off of facebook i don't you did but i like twitter yeah. as like a uh to me it's a joke uh, exercise. It's right. like a, it's like a, a word yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Scrabble or something. See, in my mind, because since I don't know what these things look like, people say follow me on Twitter, and I imagine people following like I, like fifty people on Twitter. Like I don't know how your screen would fit. Like it's, <laughs> it's sequential. It's not like all at once. I imagine like a, a tidal wave of tweets like falling on you at once, and I feel like that would. I, I don't know. I don't even know what it looks like. But so. you can scan them quickly. Okay, you I can show you sure. after okay. we get done talking. I can give you. I don't know if you want this tutorial. Right, right, right. It's like right. you know. To me, it's a it's, it's a useful in, you know information aggregator, and it's something that I can process quickly, yeah. which I think is why I like it. I mean, there are sometimes things like when I was writing the art of cruelty. It was funny because my editor, who's a very smart woman, but at Norton, but she would often tell me like. Oh, you got to go see the Hurt Locker. She'd tell me like something happening currently that she thought I should go see, and then I mean, and no offense to her because she actually didn't really know. She actually hadn't seen a lot of them herself. She just wanted to make sure I was being au courant, you know, as editors want you to be. But you know, it was very, very rare that I saw anything that merited, in my mind, inclusion in the book. You know what I mean? So it's it's just a, and then I felt like, oh my god, I just spent, you know two and a half hours at the, <laughs> at the hurt locker and right. like what is everybody talking about you know what what so, uh how do you see movies do you see a lot I've, I've gone through phases you know i mean i love the movies i love the movies but i've gone through when i first moved to la i was on like a i think because of the i wasn't prepared for how the town valued movies i mean duh it's la but i didn't i moved here to teach at an art school so i wasn't movies were not on my radar screen so i think i was so horrified because I landed here in Hollywood um, just by accident, just by what apartment was opening up from a friend of a friend, 
that I went on like a very long, maybe like a five year complete and total movie fast, you know, just to kind of be apart from my surroundings, you know, which was actually interesting because in the art of cruelty, I ended up writing about a lot of billboards and things, which are part and parcel of the landscape here. But I, you know, think that sometimes you have more of a, a perspective on things when you're not engaging in the products that they're selling you're just seeing it as landscape you know what is it like like you're saying to kind of consume to be forced to consume things as part of our public sphere you know a city like sao paulo you know has banned all you know advertising and you know in public and it's like yeah they have like the banks are just a color and things like that you can't have signage you know in sao paulo yeah and that sounds good i know right so i think it's like you know adbusters did a whole feature on that and stuff and i think that there are these moments where i just you know had i i let myself have a lot of curiosities about the way things travel without actually engaging in the products because the products are so addictive that you know once you kind of engage with them then you're even kind of more colonized by their offerings. So that was a long, you know, that was probably five years was pretty long. You're so much fast. smarter than I am. No. <laughs> Your movies. No, no, no. I love movies. I, love I know, movies, but just you know. to do that, right. that wouldn't occur to most people. I'm just like reading billboards and watching <laughs> bad television <laughs> and Facebooking about it. Well, there's a lot of movies I want to see and there's a lot of also just, but you know, I'm always feeling... You know, reading is a very delicious pleasure that I feel like actually is very off my, you know, like to write, even though like you were saying before, you have to read to get the, especially the way I write, you have to read a lot to get, but you know, reading is one of the easiest things to have fall away from your, um, because it's solitary. Especially once you you have the kid and after a certain hour, it's like, I just, I'm nodding off. I know. So I think it's very, I mean, if I didn't teach, I don't know if I would read because I mean, I love teaching and part because I love teaching, but I really feel like, you know, I make a syllabus, I pick six to eight books and then we're, then I read them every semester. And otherwise, what, when would I, when would I, if it weren't assigned work, you know, right. so I make sure I assign books or authors or like you, I'll do a semester of, you know, all current people and try and bring a bunch of them, you know, just to kind of like stay in the conversation that way yeah. as opposed to, um, yeah. So are you in LA for the foreseeable future? Do you like it here? Or are you like already planning your escape? <laughs> Are you planning your escape? No, you're just escaping the neighborhood. I don't know. Yeah, the right. neighborhood. Okay. I got to get, you know, it's a, I have a lot of love for it. Yeah. Have it's you a, lived at other places as an adult? Yeah. 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 I mean, I lived in Colorado for a okay. lot of years. Yeah. Um, I love LA. Yeah. I have like a weird affection for it. Yeah. Or at least it's not weird to me, but I think yeah. it might be weird to other people. Yeah. And it's, and maybe it's weird to me because I didn't expect yeah. to have affection for it. Yeah. There's something about LA crazy yeah. that I love, but yeah. you know how to make it work with a family and how to do all that is a different yeah. story. It's, you know, I mean, I live, you know, I live in LA, but I live on the far East side in Northeast LA. And it's very, um, I mean, that's the one thing that's so weird about LA is it's a city, right? But you know, you can get into these pockets or places where it's just like scrub and coyotes. And also yeah. not that I live in a particularly scrubby or coyote ish, you know, my actual, you know, property ish place where I live. But I think that, um, you know, I don't, I feel, I feel very, very different than I did when I landed in the middle of LA here. You know, it feels very distinct where I live now, but I think, you know, LA is, I mean, I grew up in the Bay area where LA is super demonized. And yeah. Hated. There's and, like uh, a big like rivalry. Yeah. But yeah. no one ever told me it was lovely here. It was so when I first came out to interview for the job I have now, I was just shocked. You know, I mean, all these years in New York, New York is pretty, you know, upstate's cute and pretty and whatever, and lovely rolling hills, snow falls, but you know, I wasn't prepared for the largesse and really you know, the radical, dramatic landscape of the desert and of the ocean and, and the way there shouldn't be a city here. And you can feel that, like the nature is like ready to right. to take it back. And I think that that was, you know, I have no romance with LA, like the way, I mean, New York City was like, 
my heart and soul and sure. I was like just gonna stay there forever and everything about its pace suits me and everything and here I was like oh my god I run like 50 times faster than this town but you know I've like but I've you know I've made a life here I, like I, I'm an avid swimmer and the pool's here I swim with a rose bowl and it's like I ate dirt for so many years in like this little teeny pool in Williamsburg you know right. <laughs> like, oh, on, you know, like the Parks and Recreation's $25 a year membership pool I mean I just like when I think back about like walking home with my hair turning into icicles from that pool where I was just like eating people's feet and I think about like <laughs> wow like this double Olympic pool under the sun and it's just you know it's just so beautiful so you know I like it have you read Lydia Yuknovich by any chance no but um she's I'm, a swimmer I had her on the show that's what just comes to mind yeah we're doing something together right now and I've got to read her work so yeah what is it yeah. the uh not the color of water where does she live yeah something like that she's in portland oh she's in portland okay yeah. i thought she was here Fuck. what is it called anyway yeah you'll read it yeah it's, it's been, a memoir right yeah yeah uh it's been great talking with you thank you this Brad. was a lot of My fun pleasure. thanks yeah. for coming over and uh, best of luck with that new book thank you very much <laughs> all right you guys there you go that is maggie nelson go get her books they're out there uh go get bluettes the red parts the art of cruelty etc and uh, I don't think you can find her online. I think we discussed that, actually. Maggie is uh, focused on writing and reading books instead of losing herself in the hyper-addictive wormhole that is the Internet. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, be sure to get the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this program. It's available right now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to the show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes, and you can access the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So please go get that. It's free. Otherwise, uh, mortality, childhood, memory, um, it's all very interesting. And, and I want to make my book, if I am writing a book, I want to make it funny. But so far, what I have is very serious. I haven't found the funny yet. Does it have to be funny? Am I allowed to be serious? I won't allow myself to be serious. Please remember that Edward Teller lost a foot in a streetcar accident and that Django Reinhardt spent his childhood in a gypsy caravan. That's it for now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Maggie Nelson. Uh, wasn't she great? I'll be back again in just a couple of days on Wednesday with another program for you. I will be back to deliver another episode of this. Whatever this is.